locked in to the Municipal Art Society podcast. I'm Audrey Gray, and we are here on a high floor in the historic Look Building on Madison Avenue today. We're ready for another conversation about the city we love, even when it's hateful in the wintertime. Now, joining us today is one of New York's premier naturalists, Leslie Day. She's the one on the news people call when a coyote turns up in Chelsea or when the police find baby skunks in a subway station in the Bronx. Both of those things just happened in the last year, by the way. Leslie's written a surprising set of field guides to the natural world of New York City. Each is full of illustrations and photos, and what I like best, Leslie's own poetic enthusiasm about the wild things that share these five boroughs with humans. She's come in today to remind us that we're not alone here. Leslie, welcome. Thank you, Audrey. It's wonderful being here. Now, when I was researching you, I thought that you would have been born in Oregon or Colorado or somewhere where nature looms large, but not true. Not true. I was actually born in a hospital called Gotham Hospital on Madison Avenue and 76th Street, and two days later brought back to our apartment on West 73rd Street. It was called Gotham? Yes. I love that it doesn't exist now, though, does no, it? No, it's an office building and apartment house. How interesting. So you're a native New Yorker, um, and the part of your uh, biography that just completely fascinated me and taught me a lot about New York City history that I didn't know is that you spent over 30 years living on a houseboat um, in the West 79th Street boat basin. That's right. Um, I moved there in 1975. I had actually gone out to the West Coast in the late 60s and lived in the Bay Area for four years. And out there, I lived on a houseboat in Sausalito and loved it. I really liked being near water. And so when I moved back to Manhattan to West 73rd Street, I saw an ad for a furnished studio, waterfront apartment. I called and it was a houseboat. And I you moved could down rent there. That? The, it was a rental? Back then, you could rent boats. And I rented it for a year. And then uh, it, w- it was built by a man named Sean Disney. I don't know if he's any relation to Walt, but he sold it to me for $4,000, which I had to borrow from two friends. So you ended up buying and this house. A year book. later, I bought it. Wow. Now, I saw a photograph of you. I don't know if it was late 70s, early 80s, but you're wearing this fabulous uh, flowing sort of maxi dress, and you're standing uh, or or, or sort of like kneeling on the edge of your houseboat feeding swans. Oh, my beautiful swans. Well, you know, when you live on the water, you know every storm that comes through the city. And in 1992, there was a nor'easter that lasted for three days. And the river rose up so high that it flooded the West Side Highway. But it also brought a swan family into the city, into the marina. And they stayed all winter. And then the next year, they came back with goslings, with babies. And they came back every autumn for six years. And then they disappeared uh, they only live about 18 years in the wild, but oh, I loved them. So, I mean, what a fascinating New York story. And you weren't the only one living on a houseboat there, too, right? No, actually, when our son was born in 1980, there were 100 boats, and every one of them was someone's year-round home. Amazing. So talk about being in touch with nature and a city dweller both. I can't imagine a more... Oh, it was perfect. You know. I had always loved the natural world, but I knew very little about it. And then um, living on the boat, you get to see a lot of birds and 
Um, you just feel so close to nature, but at the same time, you're umbilically tied to Manhattan. So it's, it's, it's the best of all worlds. But one day, uh, it was 1983, I was walking our dogs in the park, feeding some birds. My neighbor had a 90-year-old parrot named Bobo, who was a very finicky eater. And my neighbor Werner used to give me the leftover seed, and I'd throw it out for the birds. And one day, this beautiful little bird showed up, about nine inches, tawny brown, with a red crest and a red beak. And she followed me on that walk, and then she followed me the next day. And she followed me for three years. Okay, does that even happen? Do people get in relationships with birds? I This is amazing to me. I think people do get into relationships yeah. with, with, with yeah. wild animals and, and with trees. And, you know, once, once you form a personal relationship with another living creature, I think it just opens up a whole new world to you. Because it, so you go out and walk and that bird would be there? Yes, and not only that, I mean, after a while she'd sit on the railing along the Hudson and call to me at dawn. I'd hear tip, tip, which is the call of the cardinal. You know, I loved her. And because of her, I wanted to know the name of every bird. And I borrowed, I had no field guides then. I never thought of myself as being science-oriented. But I got my first field guide to birds, which I borrowed from a friend. And I identified her as a northern cardinal, a female. And then Is I there went, any red on a female cardinal? Yes, they have a red beak and a red crest. Oh, okay. So just a just And a little hint. streaks of red. Yeah. A, a hint. And I, um, and then I wanted to know the name of every bird, every tree, every wildflower. I went back to school. I finished my degree. And then I realized, well, I really wanted to teach. So then I got a master's in education at Bank Street. And then once I was teaching, I realized, well, I really just want to teach science. Uh, and I want to teach environmental ed and biology. So this is a really natural passion that evolved for you. Yes, and it's all because of her. She was a Aww. pillar of my life. What happened to her? Well, after three years... This gorgeous red male showed up, and she took mm. off with him, and I never saw her again. Oh, but man. she had completely changed my life. Wow. And because of her, I went on to write books about the natural world. And I always have a lot of pets, cats, dogs, birds, fish, turtles. I yeah. mean, I was a science teacher for many years. Yeah, speaking of which, I heard that there were 70 animals in your classroom. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> <Which is> great. <laughs> I taught at a school called the Elizabeth Morrow School in Englewood, New Jersey, just over the George Washington Bridge. And we had 14 acres, and I had a brand-new science room, a huge room. I had a little greenhouse. I had an indoor pond. And I was teaching the evolution of vertebrate animals. So I realized I needed you know, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds, and mammals. And I loved all those animals. I was afraid of snakes, so I thought, well, time to overcome my fear of snakes. Mm. And um, and then I helped children overcome all kinds of fears. And did the kids take care of all these creatures? They helped me. <laughs> I bet. That's a lot of work. That's a whole other job. It was job. a lot of work. Amazing. So you retire now after three decades of teaching, um, and you have spent the last few years working on these incredible field guides. So tell the one just came out in the last year, Field Guide to the Neighborhood Birds of New York City. But tell us about these guides. Well, I realize that there's so much nature in New York City in the five boroughs, but most people, and, and I was one of them, know very little about it. But it's so uplifting. It's such a, a, a source of joy and pleasure and knowledge. You expand your brain and your heart. And I thought, there's room for a field. For, my first guide was called Field Guide to the Natural World of New York City. And that came out in 2007. And it was, it was about plant, 
plants and animals, geology, uh, and mushrooms, but also about the major parks in the five boroughs with maps to all the parks. And so I had to actually leave the island of Manhattan and go explore parks in the yeah. other boroughs. And we've got 30,000 acres of them in yes, New York City. Yes, of city and national and state parks. Right. And f- over 500 miles of shoreline. And so you have great biodiversity in the city. I mean, we sit below the Atlantic Flyway, which is the route that birds, migrating birds take from their uh, winter feeding grounds in South America and Central America to their northern breeding grounds up here and north and in Canada where they raise their families. And so you have hundreds of millions of birds passing over in April and May and June. And when they see all this green, all these 30,000 acres of parkland, they drop down to rest and to feed and drink, and some stay and nest and, and raise their families here. So it's not this intimidating big city for them. They're just instinctually drawn to the, to the green. And, you know, we have so many millions of trees, millions of street trees in the five boroughs. And those trees provide shelter and food for migrating birds and for year-round birds. Um, something I learned, and I, I want to talk about these birds, by the way, we're going to get deep into that. Um, but first, I was just kind of really interested in this whole idea that a lot of the species of plants um, and some animals, too, that you talk about in your guides hitched a ride. They came over on immigrant vessels um, or, you know, sometimes pets that got loose. Well, uh, that's really interesting because when, um, when the European colonists came over, they didn't know what they'd find here. So they had to bring food. They had to bring plants for food, plants for medicine, uh, plants for forage for their farm animals. And so many of those plants that they highly valued, uh, like dandelion. Dandelion greens come up early in spring or late winter. They're one of the first greens that they could eat. They relied on dandelions. Now we think of them as pests, although I don't, because they have a a long taproot that aerates the soil. And in fact, I, I have a book called The Green Immigrants, plants that changed America. And that's how I like to think of them. And then as far as birds, I mean, when they built Central Park and they created the Shakespeare uh, Garden, they, uh, they, someone wanted to release all the birds that were ever mentioned in Shakespeare's plays and all the plants <laughs> that were ever mentioned in any of Shakespeare's work. There's one at the Brooklyn Botanical Garden, too. Yeah. And so they released... At Shakespeare Garden. And so they released house sparrows. There had never been house sparrows in the United States. They released 100 house sparrows, and they immediately uh, made their nest in the eaves of the American Museum of Natural History across the street. And the same thing with European starlings. And, of course, those birds are everywhere now. They've been highly successful. It's so fascinating to me that they survive, because this is not an easy place to hang on certain months of the year. Not to mention the city. These birds are pretty much omnivores. They'll eat anything. I mean, they'll they'll eat seeds. you know, it, it, they live where they can find food, where they can find shelter. House sparrows will nest under uh, air conditioners. They nest in every single light pole along every single street corner in, in the five boroughs. And they're able to find food. And how do you know when you're, when you're encountering a sparrow? Well, there are probably more sparrows than almost any other bird in the city. They're so that's small. what we usually see, the little brown, the the little little brown, brown guys. The, yeah. the little brown birds. Uh, the female is a very dull brown, and the male has a little black uh, spot on his chest. He's more colorful. They mate for life. That is, they stay together 
for life, and they are very great parents. They have many, many babies throughout the year, and they're able to feed them. They're unafraid of humans. You just see them everywhere. Yeah, they're the ones. So they're the ones we see everywhere. Mm-hmm. I, I was fascinated by the story of monk parakeets, mm-hmm. um, which are super bright green. They're really tropical they're looking. Beautiful, beautiful, gorgeous. So t- tell us about this. They, I don't know how they got here, but they've built this elaborate nest in the gate, in the main beautiful sort of Victorian looking gate of Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn. Well, they, they're such interesting birds. They're the only parrots that live up here, and they can, they can survive the winters because of these gigantic nests that might be four stories tall. They're communal nests, so many of them work together, but each mated pair, and they also stay together for life, have their own entrance and their own nesting area behind their front door. Um, That's so New York they, of them. They built the, their nest at Greenwood Cemetery, um, along the, the towers, these stone towers. And um, it's magnificent. Of course, Greenwood Cemetery is a great spot for birding. It has water, magnificent specimen trees. Um, not too much activity. Not too much activity. <laughs> uh, that's right. <laughs> um, so these parrots do really well there, but they weren't always welcome. And I read that the cemetery took the nest down. But once they did that, then the messy pigeons came back. Mm. So then they let them nest again, and they keep the pigeons away. I'm glad you bring up pigeons, because I'm wondering if you could redeem them for us a little bit. You know, New Yorkers are very mean about pigeons. They've been called names. Rats with wings. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I am a, a great pigeon fan. Why? They are such intelligent birds. And for thousands of years, they helped humanity. Um, during wars, they would carry messages. If there were any kind of uh, pestilence, they would also carry messages uh, to get medicine. They, um, we do a lot of scientific research with pigeons to understand our own bodies. Um, they not only mate for life, but both parents feed the young, and they produce what's called a crop milk. So it's high protein, high, uh, high nutritional value, milk-like liquid that they feed they're hatchlings. As soon as the babies uh, come out of the eggs, they, they can't digest seeds yet. And so they need this crop milk. And the father is just as involved as, as the mother, as the female bird. Um, they, I mean, I don't really, I think they add to city life because they might not be any other animal around, but you always have pigeons. Tell us about these skunks that were found in the Bronx subway. Um, it was the summer of 2015. I just remember that because it was on my birthday. I remember this story. It was so much fun. And they were so cute. Oh, skunks. But are, skunks I are beautiful baby animals. skunks hung out in the Bronx. Well, they are in northern Manhattan. Um, there's a huge population in Fort Tryon Park. Fort Tryon Park is very hilly uh, with a lot of boulders that have formed caves uh, during the last ice age, boulders were toppled on top of boulders as the as the ice retreated. And um, in fact, Native Americans used those caves in Inwood Hill Park. Um, but the skunks like to den up in them mm. uh, during the winter, and they don't hibernate the whole winter. If it if there's a warm spell, they'll come out to find food. Um, they are extremely tame skunks because they're so used to living. You know, in an urban area, so they're not spooked. Do they? Do they, they don't let off spook their... easily. Yeah, good. And That's I have a to good say, thing, I would say, very good thing. 
they have terrible eyesight because they're used okay. to kind of snuffling along the ground looking for invertebrates. They are also omnivores. Um, and so usually they don't see you until you're right on top of them. Then they get spooked. Yeah. And if they feel that they need to protect themselves, they'll turn around and fire. Right. Um, and it's a horrible, horrible avoid. smell. Oh, yes. The only time I really smell it that bad is when they've been hit by a car in our neighborhood, um, because that's really the, their only the well. yeah. predator, our cars, and the great horned owl. Mm. And for a while, we had great horned owls nesting in Inwood Hill Park, and they will eat skunks, but it has no other predator. What about that coyote? Um, that was in Chelsea. People uh, from a distance, um, uh, people thought it was a German shepherd. And then they got closer and it was not. Yeah, no. <laughs> and it was, it wasn't, it caught right away. Like, and I was just astonished that it had gotten, I mean, we assume it comes up from the park, it came down, came down. from Central Park. Yeah. But how did it well, get there? I think it comes down through the Bronx, through Westchester. And then there are all these bridges that cross from the Bronx into, into northern Manhattan. And then it would have to make its way down. And they're fast. They're really hard to catch. Um, I don't know how many, if they, how many miles an hour they can travel, but I think it's something like 20 or 30. And uh, they're smart. And um, they're, they're beautiful. And it's really interesting to have them here. But I always worry about them that they're going to get hurt. Oh, you know, yeah. run over. I mean, I mean, that one that was rescued, um, that died, you know, before they could release it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they they tranquilized it, right? They With tranquilized it, and it didn't make it. Yeah. I didn't hear that part of the story. Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, it was doing fine and it was healthy. I think. I you know. It, it maybe it had a heart. I can't remember the whole yeah. story. Well, the neighbors nearly had heart attacks. Yeah, I bet. So that is no joke. Yeah. To see a wild They're not animal great in Manhattan. If you have a little dog, you know, yeah. or, or no, a of cat. Course. Of course. Natural prey. Um, I, I, I'm fascinated by these stories of, um, of, of the very, you know, slightly dangerous uh, wild animals. Uh, can we talk a little bit about raptors? Yes. Because I was thinking when, when I said that, that a small dog or a cat would be in danger with a coyote, they'd also be. Uh, they'd also be food for a red-tailed hawk. Right. And now, you call hawks the serial killers, yeah, right? I yeah. mean, they are no joke. No, well, they, and especially during nesting season, they, just like any bird, they have to feed their young. And they are fantastic parents. They also mate for life. Uh, the most famous is Pale Male, the, the red-tailed hawk that built his nest on a building on Fifth Avenue around 75th Street. And he's got to be close to 20 years old now. Um, I think he's on his fifth mate because his mates have died for various reasons. I actually researched this when I was about to interview. He's, uh, his mate now is named Octavia because she's number eight. She's number eight. Yeah, <gasps> this guy. Aww. He just keeps going. Yeah. It's beautiful that he keeps it finding is. partners. It, I mean, they, I mean he won't, survives. they won't um, divorce and find a new mate, but if something happens to the mate... They'll find another mate right away. You know, and this brings up a really interesting topic that I know um, you've been active around, and that is that, that a number of pale males' mates died from being poisoned by something they ate, which we have, I, I think some people had assumed that it was rat poison. They'd eaten rats. They'd eaten rats. That's, that's one of their, uh, they eat rats and pigeons and squirrels, whatever they can get, uh, you know, songbirds. Um but rats are easy pickings when they've been poisoned, and there's a particular rodenticide called brodificone, 
and it's um, it, it's it's terrible. So that's a it, rat killing poison. It's, yeah, it's a yeah. rat killing poison, and it takes a long time for the rat to die. Um, but they wander around outside, easy pickings. So is there an option? Like, clearly, I would think that we would want to encourage the hawks to get rid of some of our rats. I don't think too many people would argue against that. So is there another type of There are uh, rodenticides that are not so bad for our raptors. I guess you want the rat to die right away so that it's not wandering around half-drugged and easy pickings. And if you go on to uh, New York City Audubon's website... They have a whole um, page devoted to rodenticides and which ones are better to use and which ones you should stay away from. Interesting. All right, I want to let's stay with Audubon for a second because I know you've also talked a lot to people about um, about efforts to protect uh, birds uh, who are moving up and down our flyway here, um, especially in Manhattan. They see the sky reflected in all our super tall glass buildings, and they run right into the buildings. Yeah, I mean, even if, if you look outside, you can see the sky reflected. And if you're a bird, you're migrating through, you think you can just go straight. And of course, they hit the glass really hard, and then they'll either fall to the ground stunned or dead. Um, the Audubon, New York City Audubon has been working with developers to build buildings with non-reflective glass. That way the birds can see into the building and they actually are able to, yes. to process they see that some, and they go see, around it? Right, and then go around it. And of course, they're, they're developing a new kind of glass that has a pattern in it that birds also can they'll see the pattern and they'll steer clear of the glass. And how big a problem is this, these birds dying? Oh, by- I think something like 90,000 birds a year die. Oh, that's, that's significant. It is. Wow. And most of them are little migrating warblers. Um, the birds that are coming up, they're exhausted. They've been traveling, could be thousands of miles. And um, I, I also want to say that if you do find a bird, a hurt bird, an injured bird, an orphan bird, there are a few people you can call to get help. Um, you can call the Wild Bird Fund, which is the only place in Manhattan where you can take an injured bird. Um, and they are on um, Columbus Avenue between 87th and 88th. Uh, so it's called the Wild Bird Fund. And it's Rita McMahon, who's the uh, founder. So here's this man walking down Wall Street. He hears a scream. He looks up, and out of the sky falls this giant red-tailed hawk oh. at his feet. And that's like a two-foot-long oh, situation huge. right there. Oh, they're huge. Yes. Big. Yeah, they're big. Um, and so he somehow he got the name of the Wild Bird Fund. He got the bird to Rita. And she did all these tests. She found it had parasites. It was dehydrated. They nursed it back to health. And then when she does a release like that, she lets people know. Um, and so there were like 20 people that went with her. And we, we formed a little parade and we carried the hawk. In <laughs> Not back to Wall Street. Big, no, <laughs> big brown box yeah. into Central Park. Okay. And we were going to release it in the Pinedum, which is on around 84th Street. Um, but we just said, look up and see if there are any other red tails. And sure enough, we could see a red tail way over by Columbus Avenue. Within seconds, it had flown and landed in a tree joined by another red tail. There was no way they could see inside the box. So my theory was that they had seen her release things before, and they knew what it meant. So we had to move further south, and we went by uh, more cl- closer to the Museum of Natural History, and they didn't follow us. And so we tipped the box, and it flew off and flew oh. away. It was really exciting. 
You're the Jane Goodall of New York City. <laughs> this is great to hear these stories. I want to talk to you about winter um, because it's hard here for humans. Um, and I'm wondering if there, I mean, so many humans are trying to either, you know, hibernate themselves or just get through it. And we walk around, you know, in the winter on this island and, and, and oh, the other birds. It's brutal. And we hunch over and we get tired and worn down and beat down when it's still going on in April. Um, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on maybe redeeming winter for us a little bit. Well, you know, what should we look for this I, winter? I used to feel that way. I mean, I, I, I still don't like the cold, but I would look at the trees and I would think, no, they're so ugly in winter. No, there's no color. Um, I would feel so sorry for the animals. I just thought, why, why do we have to go through this? But I have a different take on it now because after studying uh, plants and animals for so long, for so many decades, I've learned how not only how the plants survive winter, but how other animals survive winter. And if you look closely when you're walking through the park or even down the street and you, you, you're going past street trees, you can see winter buds that, that are there already developed, waiting for spring, waiting to absorb water, take up water and expand and bloom. And the trees produce tons of fruit. And it's the fruit, it's the dried berries that the birds and the little animals are able to survive on. Um, and so if you look closely, there are even some plants that are flowering in winter. The witch hazel trees have beautiful little yellow spidery-like petals. They're blooming right now. And, and where, it's December, almost where are December. they? Which, which boroughs? They're in all the boroughs. They're in oh. all the parks. So if you look up witch hazel tree, okay. you'll see what we'll they Google look that. like. Yeah, okay. And then um, there's rose hips. All the rose bushes produce these berries which are called rose hips, are very high in vitamin C, protein, and other nutrients that birds love. Um, I, you know, there's just every single flowering tree produces a fruit. And I'm not talking about fleshy fruit like apples and peaches so much, but uh, the part of the plant that holds the seed is the fruit. So it could be dried berries. It could be an acorn you know, this morning I saw blue jays eating acorns off the tree in front of my house. So it's, it's just a cornucopia out there and beautiful. I would love to hear your thoughts on our five questions we ask all our podcast guests. Um, because I'm interested to hear if you take a nature slant on these or if, uh, but answer them any way you like, just okay. as, as they strike you. So we ask everyone, love to hear your uh, fondest hope for our city. Well, I, um, I know as a person who loves walking down a leafy street that New Yorkers will start to take an interest in the trees on their blocks, wherever they work or wherever they live or wherever they go to school. So many trees suffer uh, during the summer because they don't get enough water uh, or people let their dogs you know, poop on the tree bed. Um, it would be so great if neighbors could get together and plant uh, you know, little flowers in the tree bed. Um, I know uh, my neighbors and I are going to be mulching our tree beds and building um, tree guards around them um, to protect them. Because the tree, if you give to the trees, they will give back to you. There'll be a place where birds will alight. They'll be so beautiful in every season. And I think it's it's something we really need to do to keep New York so green and so beautiful. Your greatest fear for the city? 
Well, aside from terrorists and killer storms, right, right, those you know are terrifying. Um, is that people will have apathy toward the natural world? I mean, here we have this green, this, this green uh, emerald city of Oz, and it's because of people that we have it. If it weren't for the visionaries who planned the parks, you know, Central Park, Prospect Park, Fort Tryon Park, all these parks. I mean, uh, that give such sustenance to New Yorkers and to the other animals, uh, our fellow New Yorkers, um, if there's apathy toward the parks, then I think they can fall into disrepair like yeah. they did in the 70s. For sure. Yeah. And, I um, think they're still rebuilding from that period in our are. history. Yeah. They are. And I, and I think uh, the mayor actually is working hard to reach out to and take care of, of the of the orphan parks. That oh, yeah, there's been... a lot of action right now in, in uh, the way the city's addressing yeah. parks. It's fascinating. Okay, um, another question. What's one place you'd like to see preserved for all time? Well, I, I, you know, at first I want to say Central Park. It's the park of my childhood. But for the last five years almost, I've been very involved with Fort Tryon Park. And, and that's the northernmost tip of Manhattan. Yeah, it's in Washington Heights. Yep. And it's just a jewel of a park. It's only it's, it's where the cloisters is. It's only sixty seven acres, but it's eight miles of pass. It's very hilly. Part of it looks out over the Hudson River, but there's a particular garden that I adore called the Heather Garden that blooms year round. And I've been volunteering in that garden now, I don't know, since early summer. And I love it so much. I mean, it's like a botanical garden here in New York City. Um that is open to the public 24-7. Oh, really? And, I'm going to go take a winter they, walk up there. They did a study based on people's tweets of the happiest places in Manhattan <laughs> and the, in New York City and the yeah. unhappiest. Yeah. And the happiest was Fort Tryon Park. Now, last question. Your day off fantasy, what would you do with a free day in New York City? No responsibilities. I would. It would be 84 degrees. And I would go up to Orchard Beach, and I would spend the day swimming and bird watching. Uh, Pelham Bay Park is right there. It's New York City's largest park. It's over 2,000 acres. And I would, it has most wonderful birds, including a nesting pair of great horned owls. But even the shorebirds are beautiful there, and there are tidal pools along the Long Island Sound. So that's what I would like to do. Oh, I wish you many of those days in 2016. Thank you. Leslie, thank you so much for the stories what and for your pleasure, time today. Audrey. Hey, can you tell um, people how to get a hold of your field guides? If you go to my website, which is Leslie Day, L-E-S-L-I-E-D-A-Y dot N-Y-C, you will see where you can get hold of the field guides. They're also available on, on, on all the booksellers online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And your latest one is Field Guide to the Neighborhood Birds of New York City. Yes. So Leslie is one of many experts who leads tours for the Municipal Art Society. So to you all, think about taking a walking tour in 2016. You learn so much about the city. We're often just rushing through. Plus you meet some really thoughtful people on these. They often know as much as the tour guides. I'm amazed. That's right. So take a look at that list of tours. It's on the website, mas.org, mas.org. Thanks so much. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Audrey. And thanks to all of you for spending podcast time with us today. We'll do it again soon.